Hey guys, this is Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival, and you're listening to the Fieldcraft Survival podcast. This podcast is brought to you by some of our good, 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 good friends. Uh, Black Rifle Coffee over in Salt Lake City, Evan and the boys. Uh, they are doing some really, really cool stuff for the coffee industry, making some amazing coffee that keeps us running on uh, all cylinders over here. And I will tell you that I am highly, highly caffeinated for this podcast coming up today. So please check out Evan and the boys. Uh, BlackRifleCoffee.com is the website. Check them out on all their social media. They are hooked up with Travis Pastrana now doing a whole bunch of racing and wild, wild stuff. And we're really excited to be uh, working with them to bring you some really incredible content this year. And we're really excited that they're helping us bring you this podcast. So please check them out, BlackRifleCoffee.com and uh, all the social media is at Black Rifle Coffee. The other sponsor that we have is currently riding in my uh, appendix, and that is Sig Sauer. Uh, Sig Sauer is America's leading firearms company. They're making all sorts of amazing firearms, the 320, the 365, the Sig Cross, the Sig MPX, which I am dying to get my hands on. Um, and not to mention they make phenomenal ammo. If you've never tried their match grade ammo, I will tell you that their 6.5 Creedmoor OTM round, their match round is the best I've ever seen. It is ridiculously, ridiculously consistent for long range shooting. I swear by Sig Sauer. Uh, Sig Sauer Academy is a great place to train. We're a training company, but I'll tell you, go train with them too. Uh, they are phenomenal. All the instructors over there, good, good folks. Um, so please check them out. Guys, this podcast is going to uh, run pretty, pretty fast. You're going to find it to be pretty exciting because I'm going to be hyped up on coffee. So uh, settle back or settle in. Is it settle in or settle back? I think it's settle in, relax, and get ready for this podcast with my good buddy, Liam Hoffman of Hoffman Blacksmithing. Guys, check it out. Here we go. Liam Hoffman of Hoffman Blacksmithing is joining us today on the podcast. Uh, Liam and I go back, I don't know how many years now, probably five or six. And uh, we've got a lot of interesting history together. I've used his tools. I will tell you that you're not going to find a better American-made axe anywhere else in the country than coming out of Liam Hoffman's shop. And uh, the guy's got a lot of interesting, interesting background. And he, he doesn't know it yet, but I think he's a field craft guy. So Liam, how the hell are you? Good. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us after a long day in the shop. I know you, you, you know, you bust your ass every single day in there and you're one of the hardest working guys I know. So, uh, what were you I working on today? That caffeine. Yeah, you do right now. <laughs> what were you working on today? Uh, well, we're working on a batch of Hawksbill axes, which is the double bladed axe. And those are always a good challenge because I have to do twice as many blades in the same amount of time. So they're, they're always fun and good challenge. I don't think a lot of people understand like your background because I mean, they, they see your axes. If you go on social media, you can follow Hoffman blacksmithing on Instagram, on Facebook, and you'll see ridiculous following. I just saw one of your Jaeger knives going up for sale the other day for five grand, uh, in the secondary market. And some people might not know like what makes your racks stand apart from all the other ones. Um, so I want to kind of talk about where you are now, but then I want to go back to like little Liam and then kind of the history, <laughs> the little, the history of, of you rising through the ranks as a blacksmith. So 
what makes your act stand apart today? I think that everything about it makes it stand apart. If you were to have a side-by-side in-person comparison with one of my axes to another comparable axe, you'd see huge differences in every aspect, the sheath, the axe head geometry and design and the handle ergonomics as well. I try to take every single aspect of the axe to the next level uh, with both aesthetic design and then of course functionality, how it feels in your hand. And, and that's something that I'm constantly changing. If you have an ax that I made a year ago, it's different than an ax that I'm making now. And uh, that's just because we're never happy with where we, uh, well, we're happy with where we're at, but we're, we're never, you know, settling for where we're at. We want to keep improving it. And I think that that's what sets the axes apart from a lot of other axes. And it's, you know, they look nice in photographs and online, but you, you really don't know until you get one and get to hold it in person and use the tool and see what it, it's about. Yeah. I'm an ax junkie. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, as a little kid, I grew up reading the book hatchet and, you know, I've had all different types of axes over the years, the, the S wing axes, the Gerber axes, the old, you know, ocean state job lot, you know, bargain bin store kind of like ax slash hammer slash crowbar combo tool. That's a piece of garbage. Um, and I've also picked up axes over the years at, you know, uh, thrift shops and things like that, like old Collins axes. And I mean, I, I have, I go absolutely berserk for like old school U S forestry service axes. And, uh, I remember one of the first things I heard about your axes, you're like, yeah, by the way, I hammer, or I, I turn all the poles into actual hammers and you're not going to get like mm-hmm. these crazy mushroomed poles that you find on all these old axes that are, you know, hundred, 150 years old that were probably used to drive in, you know, metal stakes. You're like, yeah, you can go ahead and hit it with mine. You'll never damage it. And I was like, damn, really? And that, that to me pretty much sold me on your stuff. Yeah. Old axes. I think the main reason was expense. Steel used to be a lot more expensive. Well, the, uh, high carbon or, or alloy steel used to be a lot more expensive a long time ago. And so it was cost prohibitive to make the pole hardened. It also adds more cost to the process of making the ax to do that. But now it's something that we can, we can do and set us apart. One other thing that sets us apart from other axes is uh, a lot of other axes still today don't have a hardened pole, which doesn't make any sense to me at all why you wouldn't do that. When I went out the other day, uh, or not the other day, a couple months ago with Austin to do some filming and some recording, we took out one of your axes, um, what 24 inch handle and, and Austin's a big axe nerd too. And he's looks, he's looking at your axe and he's like, this is the nicest axe I've ever seen in my entire life. And, you know, when you're working with a camera guy like Austin, you know, I'm working on, you know, felling trees. He's taking pictures of me felling trees. He's like, okay, now try it again. And I'm, I'm trying to hit the tree lightly and I'm trying to not make it look too canned for the photo, but I would hit the tree and it's cutting so cleanly through. And Austin's like, fuck, you know, we gotta, we gotta stage another tree, you know, like it's not like you're, when you get an ax from you, you got to spend a lot of time with a file or, you know, a belt sander, you know, the, the axes that you're sending out are ridiculously sharp. They're, they're great performers. And, uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. They they definitely cut better than 
most of the stuff that I've seen out there with the exception of maybe like those crazy, what are they? New Zealand race axes that are like nine pounds. Yeah. Some of those Tua Tua Tahis, they put, um, wild, really wild grinds on them, like for race axes and things like that. Um, but a lot of the, I think they, they'll make a more durable grind and a more race grind. If you were to use like the racing ax grind on in, in the woods, it would probably damage the edge. It's too fragile. Um, but yeah, they, those are some serious axes as well. But you're making one that I would, I would put side by side against one of those. You're making that giant farm ax, right? Like a six pound head. It It's not that big. It's a four no? and a half pound head, but it's, it's huge. It's almost <laughs> too much for me to swing. Like when I'm swinging it, I have to pace myself and hold back because it's it's just a lot of axe. You could get hurt really bad, really fast if you're not careful with something like that. Yeah, our mutual buddy Justin. I remember he showed me a video of him when he got his axe, his farm axe from you, and he's like, "Yeah, look at this. It's in my backyard. I've got a piece of wood, you know, seasoned hardwood on my." on my chopping block, he goes, and here's my first swing. And I watched the video and he swings through the hardwood and literally all the way through his chopping block. And I was like, you're such an idiot, but that's Justin, you know, shout out to you, Justin, by the way. Um, oh yes. I, I remember the seeing that video now. <laughs> typical, <laughs> typical Justin. The block. Um, but now people might be wondering, like, how did you get your start? And, you know, I kind of want to pair this conversation with the book that you wrote about getting started in blacksmithing, because, you know, I think your career path is really interesting. You know, where so much of, of public education now is, is telling people like, you have to go to college, you have to go to grad school. You have to like, you were like, no, I want to do this thing with my, with my hands. I want to, I want to get in there and, and run my own business at a young age. And it's impressive what you did, but kind of talk us through, like when you were a kid, the first thing that you forged and then how you, you kind of, leveled up each way, like in, in like the certain moments where you're like, okay, I'm at the next level. I'm at the next level. So like, what was, what was your history? Um, well, I, I started when I was 13 and didn't know what blacksmithing was at all. I was just bored. And, um, the first, the first thing I did was just hammer on a cold piece of aluminum. And then the same day I wanted to heat the steel up with the fire. So I just built a campfire and, um, banged on a piece of steel that, uh, like scrap piece of scrap metal that my dad had and made a knife. That was actually the first thing that I made. And from there, it was just a really organic progression, really slow. I think a lot of people think that I, have, uh, it has gotten to where I am quickly but I've been doing this for almost 13 years now. And, um, for, um, let's see, 10 years of that or nine years of that, I was in nothing bigger than a, a 10 by 27 wooden shack with a dirt floor. Um, and that was a multi-year project that my dad started. So once I started getting interest in this, when I was in eighth grade or so, I, uh, made it pretty clear to everyone that this is what I wanted to do. And then my parents were really supportive of that. And so my dad started working on building this, uh, shed thing, shed building, uh, really primitive (laughs) structure. And I've just 
he, he sort of, they were supportive of me, but they did not buy my tools for me. They, you know, were like, you know, if you're going to do this, then you do it on your, you, you know, you buy your tools and you make it work. And I just sort of saved up my money, put everything back into the business and it kept evolving, kept evolving. And, um, in 2016, I, uh, went on Forge and Fire and of course won that. And that was a huge level up for the business. And then in 2018, towards the end of 2018, I moved into the shop that I'm in now, which uh, is 6,000 square feet. So I went from 270 to 6,000, which was, I, I didn't even know what to do with all the space. I thought that I would have space forever. And now, um, about three years later, we've got this place full, and the, we have, uh, I have five full-time employees, and I just want to keep taking things to the next level. I enjoy the process as much as I do the finished products, um, with especially with production anyways. I enjoy the process engineering. We, of course, design the products, but then I have to figure out the processes that would be most efficient to make that and still keep it handmade. And then the tooling and the jigs that would be required. Then we have to prototype and make those tools and then figure out which machines those tools are going to work best on and then actually test the process. And that is just as, uh, just as satisfying as to me is making the axes right now. Man, well, let's let's back up a little bit because you kind of just were like nonchalant and saying, oh, yeah, I went on Forge and Fire and I won it. Um, and you just posted recently on social media. You did the Cora sword, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were some interesting things, you know, when we we've traveled together and we were talking about it and I was kind of picking your brain about it, um, about the whole process on, on Forge and Fire. You went up against a master bladesmith, right? At age 19. Yeah, I went against an ABS master bladesmith and, um, he was, this master bladesmith was very accomplished. He's actually the youngest person ever to get master bladesmith. So he was a, a big deal in the knife community. And so it was, I was pretty nervous when I first found out that that's who I was going to have to go against because he's, he's very good. So, um, it was a good challenge for sure. And now you win Forge and Fire. Uh, I, was that the same year that we met at Blade Show? Was that 2017? Six, 16. Well, I, let's see. I, um, I guess the first Blade Show after I won was 2017. Yeah. But the, the show was filmed in 2016. Okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, obviously you get notoriety from that right it's i mean that was one of the early seasons of the show right like probably season one or season two um you know i i've noticed like over the years the show has changed the hosts have changed the the guest expert panel has changed you know here and there um but you you go on that show and then fame comes well fame within the knife world um and now you're starting to make axes and what happens to your, your wait list? Like before the show, how long would someone have to wait to get an ax and what happened after the show? Before the show, I was doing 
just fine. That we were on about a ten month wait time on the axes and had no problem selling knives. But after the show aired and after I also sent some axes to some people on YouTube who have really big followings, that all of this sort of happened around the same four month time window, all the all of this exposure and we instantly went to about three years and I had to shut it down completely. I got uh, way in over my head with orders because I don't have any experience or know how to manage that type of demand. So we got in over our heads very quickly. I ended up shutting my orders down completely and just working on my backlog. And I was shut down for about two years, I think, just trying to work that back. And now today we are still about two years backlogged, but we limit our intake each week. It's not just wide open ordering. If it was, if it were wide open ordering, I'm sure we would be at least 10 years backlogged uh, probably within a month. And we, we don't want that. So the show and exposure from all sorts of different people like yourself on Instagram and, and stuff is really brought a lot of it um exposure to our brand and we're we stay super busy you know what i find interesting about your your products and whatnot is that you're constantly expanding uh you started off with like the axes and the knives and now you're you're offering replacement axe handles and even if you just look at like your process of making axe handles there's artistry there you know, but it's functional and it's not like these hipster axes that you see some guys buying and then they paint the, they paint the handles and, you know, they'll never know how to swing it. And they wear, you know, flannel just for the sake of wearing flannel. And, you know, like your axes all have history behind the designs or, you know, you look at the shape of your, the axe handles and you're like, oh, I've never seen that before. It's like, well, probably because when someone mass produces an axe handle, they can't take it to that level without some understanding of how to use an ax too. And, and I think that's one of the the more authentic things about your business is that you've got a lot of experience. You grew up in North Carolina, you were a boy scout, right? You went, you got your Eagle. Yeah. Eagle scout. And I spent all my childhood outdoors. Yeah. I remember looking at one of your videos one time and you were like hiking through, uh, was it the blue mountains and you're jumping into creeks and I'm like, this kid's crazy. Like, like, you know, I don't know what the, uh, the temps were, but you're like, oh, I'm just going to jump in this Creek up here. And you know, there's no doubt about it that you've got the, the wild streak in you, you know? Um, and I well, think I did go, I did go swim in that glacier water with you in Alaska. No, 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 no. Let's, cr- hold on. let's correct this here. That was you and Chad. I, I stood back and I was like, these idiots, right? Like, and, and the funny thing was, this is, uh, for those of you guys that, that aren't privy to this information, uh, we traveled to Alaska in 2019 pre COVID and, uh, we went fishing, we hung out with the, the folks over, over at silver tip lodges and, you know, Liam ate salmon eggs after decapitating a, a, a dead salmon. Uh, and then <laughs> what else? Uh, there's a incredible photo bomb, which I might try to get to be like the, the photo that's used in this, this podcast, but, uh, no, you guys jumped into that, in, into that, uh, that glacial lake and you took a photo of your ax sticking like in the, the iceberg essentially. Yep. And I'm standing there. Yeah, like I, This dedication for my, 
my company. Yeah, you did it for the I've gram. I've got to get the photo, you know? <laughs> you did it for the gram. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think that's what's pretty cool, too, is that, like, you're, the spirit of adventure has never gone away with you. Um, a lot of the guys that listen to this podcast are are motorheads, right? Like, they were fieldcraft mobility. You know, we, we do a lot with overlanding. And you've done a lot with your motorcycles. Um, now, I've seen the videos of you doing corners at God knows what speed, but you've also done a lot of motorcycle touring. So like, what are your, your preferences for bikes? And what was that trip that you took from, was it from North Carolina down to, uh, uh, Latin America? What was that all about? Uh, well, I have, I like both dual sport riding and sport bike riding. I have a, a BMW GS 650, which is, uh, it's like a huge dirt bike. And I also have a Ducati, um, monster sport bike. So I, 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 I like this, the area that I'm in here is perfect for either, or it's some of the best riding in the entire country. And, uh, I got in, actually got into motorcycling from this trip to Mexico that I took with four other guys, had my friend, uh, call me and say, Hey, uh, do you want to go on this motorcycle trip to Mexico? And I was like, I don't even know how to ride a motorcycle, but <laughs> sure. So I bought a motorcycle a couple of weeks after I committed to it and had about four months to learn how to ride it. And then we spent an entire month in Mexico on back roads and we did some um, mountaineering at 18,000 feet and, just all sorts of crazy stuff and, uh, got back home and then got into sport bike riding. And I just enjoy, yeah, I enjoy going fast. I enjoy going through the, going through the woods on the dual sport and getting to camp as well. So it's a, I don't think that, that I'll ever, ever get away from motorcycles unless I'm forced to. And what was that story when you were on that trip in Mexico, when you were mountaineering about like the glacier given way or something? Or like you were there one day before it didn't, did? didn't give away on us, but we found out that a week later, an American person died in the same spot where we had just been hiking very unprepared, unpreparedly. So Jeez. it was a, a kind of a wake up call after we had already gotten down from it. Man, that's wild. And how long did it take to get from North Carolina to where you were in Mexico, like on bikes? Well, we trailered them to Texas oh, okay. to the, um, to the line. And then we, we, we didn't go, go that far down into Mexico. I mean, we went down to where the, uh, where, um, let's see, where were we, uh, Veracruz city on the Gulf coast. And then we went over to the West coast, but we just mainly took our time and did whatever we had no plans. So, you know, we'd be riding along and take a beer break on the side of the road and then say, well, I, we were stuck here now. We have to camp here and we just do do that day by day and didn't know what was going to happen next until we got, we got, you know, three days left till we needed to get back. And we just head back from where we were, Damn. which is, I think the best way to do a trip. Damn. Yeah. And speaking of trips, you've done that one. We, we mentioned Alaska. We did the trip to South Africa. Um, you know, so your axes have been all over. Is there any place right now that 
or any country or continent that hasn't seen an axe of yours? I don't think so. Um, no, definitely no. Every continent we have axes on every continent. I'm I'm sure there's some countries that don't have my axes, but we've we've sent them to some obscure places, <laughs> uh, some islands that I've never heard of, and I, I'm sure they're in every state here in the in the U.S. for sure. You ever get any strange feedback from customers like? man, your ax is so sharp. I had an accident. I cut my, my leg open with it, but it's amazing. Like, I, I just imagine you get some absolutely bizarre feedback. Um, I surprisingly not a ton of people have injured themselves, or at least I don't know how many have, have horribly injured themselves. But I've definitely been sent a few photos of people that have missed a, guys who've sunk them into their thighs or go through their feet or things like that. But, uh, I get lots of, lots of people like this, try to shave with them and cook with them and <laughs> do all sorts of stuff with them. Whenever we teach a survival class here and we're talking about using something greater than like a belt knife or a folding saw. And the question always comes up, ax or machete, ax or machete. I'm like, well, you know, get the longest handled ax you can get, because if you swing and miss, hopefully it will go into the dirt. But if you get yourself a small hatchet and you're not in a really experienced person, you're probably going to put that into your kneecap. And, you know, oh. I've heard stories and I've seen the photos online and, and every once in a while you go on the book of faces and you'll see a guy that's bragging about like, oh, I just put this through my thumb. This is amazing. Look at, look at this. Like. And I'm like, Jesus, you know, sometimes you do not get a second chance to make that mistake. You know, you make it once and you're done. Um, but what's really cool and really, really, you know, interesting about your operation now is you're still finding the time to teach blacksmithing. Um, so now getting back to your book, you came up with that book. And then in addition to the book of how to become a blacksmith or, or how to how to forge on different budgets, you've got a, a class that people can take, right? Yeah, I, I actually just taught one this last weekend. Yesterday, I taught a, a basic blacksmithing class. And what does that look like when someone shows up? Like, what are what do they learn? Kind of without giving away the industry secrets, what are they learning? I mean, I, I teach them all of the essential fundamentals of blacksmithing. The big focus is on hammer control, how to swing a hammer properly and effectively and efficiently and how to draw out or taper steel, how to upset steel, how to punch and drift a hole and how to bend steel correctly. Um, my class, my class is really heavily focused on people or is geared towards people who actually want to learn how to blacksmith. It's not really, it's not so much of like a tourist experience where you mm -hmm. just come in and, you know, the instructor kind of does everything for you and you end up you going home with this project. I, I'm not interested in that at all. I want to teach people who actually want to learn how to blacksmith. So it's really more um, technical and detailed into all of the theory of blacksmithing and why, how, and uh, just trying to really give someone a, a solid base for blacksmithing. And in your book, when you talk about like getting started blacksmithing on a budget, what are the basic tools 
like if a person was interested in starting this as say like a hobby to eventually find out if they're interested in doing this more full time or, or even on a part-time basis, what are the basic tools and the reason why like each tool is needed that a person would need to get started? So there's only four things that you need to blacksmith and that is a hammer, anvil, tongs, and a heat source. And none of these things require uh, electricity mm-hmm. or really to spend uh, more than a hundred bucks or you, most people have things laying around the house that they can get started with. So obviously you have to have a hammer to shape the steel and you have to have tongs to hold the steel and um, an anvil, which you don't need with all of these things. You don't really need a proper uh, anvil or a proper hammer, or proper tongs or proper forge. You know, you could use vice grips for tongs. You can use a framing hammer for your forging hammer if you really need to, or you can buy mallets at the hardware store that work just fine. Anvils could be any heavy piece of steel from a scrapyard that you can get for cents on the pound. And your heat source can be just be something as simple as a, a campfire with an air source. So that's what I try to drive home in the book because I get a lot of comments online or I see comments on other people's posts just out there about um, how blacksmithing is so expensive to to get into, or I'll have people comment on my setup and they'll say, oh, I wish I could do that, but I couldn't afford to. And, um, I try to explain to people that how I started personally. And the reason I speak about this is because it is, I have experienced it. It's not, I was not given any of the things that I started with. Uh, and I started in a single day with things that were just laying around, my dad's house or things that you could pick up at a local hardware store for nothing. And, um, that's one of the, the cool things about blacksmithing is that you can, you could do it with a setup that is extremely, uh, primitive. You could be forging in a shop that looks like maybe it was from the 1600s, or you could be forging in a shop with huge equipment and machinery. There's lots of different options. And, and obviously there's going to be a, a learning curve with blacksmithing. I mean, I've heard of people and I've seen the fundraisers online for folks who have burnt down their shops by accident. But I mean, aside from the, the major catastrophes like that, what are some of the more common things that happen to like a blacksmith? Like when they're learning, like, damn it, I made that mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Like burning steel, I'm assuming, or burning yourself. But like, what are some of the common things that a person who's listening, who's like, I want to become a blacksmith, they should probably be aware that this could happen. Mm, I don't know. It might be hard for me to think about injury, common injuries and stuff, because I don't think of them as anything other than normal occurrences. But uh, I suppose certain, some things would, would deter people like, scale burns, which is something that happens almost every single time you forge, you'll get burned by the hot flakes of metal oxidized steel that fall off of your workpiece and they'll land on your hands and your arms and give you second degree burns almost every single time you forge. Uh, you can get shrapnel in your body from hammering on punches and drifts and things like that. Shrapnel that could kill you or, or be too difficult to remove. Um, 
it's, that's and then of course you could get cut or get a finger smash or anything like that. Those are probably the most common blacksmithing injuries. And then, um, other than that, it's just the blacksmithing is a huge learning curve with your hammer control, being able to manipulate the steel properly, which is what I try to drive home in my class is how to manage those tools because forging to me is just like a potter sculpting clay, but you can't use your hands. You have to, so you have to figure out how to manipulate this material like clay using tongs and hammers and other tools. And that's the the biggest challenge is how to, how to use these tools like they're your own hands. Yeah. And you're not, a, <laughs> you're not able to just reach in and grab the, the metal and shape it like you would a, like a pinch pot in clay. <laughs> you actually have to, to hit this thing that, you know, is a, a flaming piece of metal. Um, now you've obviously expanded your operation and you've purchased some ridiculous tools. Like I've seen some of the, the videos that you guys have posted up and Justin's talked to me about it. And he's like, you know, Liam just got this new, you know, drum sander, or he just got this new hammer or, or something like that. Um, and he's like, it's over a hundred years old. Like there are some unique tools in your 6,000 square foot shop. Now, um, what are some of the ones that would surprise listeners? Um, well, the some of the the two oldest things that I have are my are both of my power hammers. One is a is made in the nineteen teens, and the other is made in the nineteen twenties, and they are the top top of the line power hammers to this day. There's there are very few power hammers being made still because they're almost obsolete. But the, of the ones being made today, they're still not as good as the ones that were made when blacksmithing was kind of at its height in, in industrial blacksmithing on larger scale. So, uh, those are really neat machines to still see them in full swing production to this day. It, it shows you how high quality they were built, but most of my other tools are from the fifties or sixties and, are incredibly simple and I like these tools because they are very easy to operate and fix and um, you can find them at great prices because they are kind of becoming more obsolete to modern manufacturing. How easy are they to, uh, to maintain? They're, there's really, no, I mean, it's just like a, an old vehicle. You, you just have to give them oil and grease and clean them. And, uh, that's, that's really it. There's no computer. There's no computer in the machine. There's no, um, electronics at all. Typically it's just, uh, gears and pulleys and things like that. So it's, it keeps things simple and it also allows us to maintain a handmade, the handmade aspect in the axes that we create. And also allows us to use tools that would have been used to make an ax during some of the height of axes, the late 1800s, you know, so it's kind of neat to use machines like that. Speaking of maintenance, person buys your axe 
or they buy any traditional wood-handled axe, steel head. What is the suggested maintenance for an axe? Like if you're using it in the wintertime, you bring it indoors, or it's you're living in a very humid area. Like what, what do you advise people to do with your axes to maintain them? Well, unless you live in, and then, well, okay. So I am very hard on my axe, <laughs> my personal axe. I don't baby it at all. And you don't really need to, unless you want to maintain a certain look. But as far as, uh, as, as far as the environment goes around you, I think the only environment that I would really suggest that people more baby their axe and stay up the top of their axe would be a dry environment would be a desert environment because you have the chance of the handle actually drying out and loosening up coming out of the axe head. So you'd have to, um, oil the axe handle more frequently. And, uh, other than that, you, you basically, it's, it's a chunk of wood and a chunk of metal. There's not much to it. You oil the wood like you you would um, oiling a piece of furniture or uh, a cutting board or whatever it may be. And then the axe head, you put protective oil on because it will rust if it stays wet. But if it does rust, it's not a, a big deal. It can just be rubbed off with steel wool and then and uh, oiled. And then the leather sheath, I suggest that people just treat it like you would a pair of leather boots. If it gets dried out, you put leather conditioner on it, you know, and um, as you do all of these things to your axe, it'll start getting a patina and start, uh, I think that they start looking cooler after they get a patina. Um, but there's there's not a lot to axe maintenance. Uh, changes of the seasons are good times to oil your axe handle and sheath and all that stuff. But it, it's a very simple tool. I think a lot of people overthink it uh, for the most part. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> out here in Utah, you know, I've got one of your, uh, you know, two and a half pound or is it two and a quarter pound camp axes? I think it's two and a quarter. Um, I've, yeah. got, I've got one of those and I've got one of your hatchets and I routinely, routinely put put oil on the handle because it is so dry out here. Um I mean, yeah. forest fires like crazy out here in Utah. Um, so I do, I tend to, to oil it a little bit more than usual, but um, I've never had an issue because you pressure uh, fit those wedges into the handles to the point where the, what, do, what are you soaking them in? Linseed oil or neat's foot oil? It bubbles out. Oiled linseed oil. Yeah. The hand, the head is, there's no way that the handle is coming out of that head unless that thing is laying out in a desert for a long time. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say the only climate that I would really suggest that someone pay more attention to it is in a dry desert climate. And you're going to have to stay on top of oiling the handle more. But if you're in an area like where I'm in, in the Appalachian mountains, it's basically a, a rainforest here. You don't have to, the ax is not going to come loose. Good to know. Because we, when, when we press the wedges into the handles, it will, um, compress the wet, the, the wooden wedge, uh, sometimes down to half of its original thickness. It'll, it'll condense the wood and it will squeeze the oils in the wood out of it. It'll, you'll see the oils bubbling out. It's so tight. So there's, you know, they're locked in it, the, the tool won't need to be 
babied really mine is covered in rust and grime and stuff like that right now i take it you're not a fan of splitting wood grain with metal wedges on top of that no i haven't put (laughs) a metal wedge and an axe handle in a really really long time because it doesn't all it does is compromise the handle there's no it, it doesn't help at all you could as long as you do a proper job with the wooden wedge, all you're going to do with the metal wedge is damage your handle. There's really no point in them. And I think that if you, this might offend some ax people out there, but I think that if you see an ax handle that has a metal wedge in the top, it is sort of a sign that whoever made that ax does not know uh, as much about it as they should maybe. It, it's kind of a, a sign that the hang job is not done properly. Going to all these thrift stores, you know, looking through, you know, buckets of ax heads, right. Looking for like that, that Holy grail of something that I'm, I'm looking for. Right. I've seen so many ax heads that are wiggling on ax handles and there are nails driven into the, uh, <laughs> You know what I mean? And like, and, and I'm looking at these nails and I'm like, oh my God, there's like four nails in here, right? One of them is bent over halfway through. Like someone probably was cutting down some trees and had a little bit of whiskey and thought it was a great idea. Um, but that's gotta be one of my biggest pet peeves when I see a beautiful ax head, you know, and you can tell that someone just beat the snot out of it. And I don't know, maybe they used it the right way, but maybe they, uh, they lacked some of the understanding of how to put that thing back together. Um, I mean, I'll say in a, in a pinch, if you need, if it's a last ditch effort, you know, the handle is going to come off. If you don't, then you can smash some metal wedges into it. But if you do that, you know that that handles, it's just downhill from there. It's only a temporary solution. You mentioned treating leather boots, and I know you are a little bit of a boot snob, or at least you've had boots that you say like you you've worn in the shop and like, they don't wear out. Like, and I know that I've come across a bunch of guys in training that ask about my boots. I, I tend to wear all different types of boots, but what's your preference on boots? I wouldn't say that I'm a boot snob. I, I'm going to say like that you're a nice boot thing. <laughs> Go ahead. And um, the, the boots that I have been wearing for three years now, I suppose, are Nick's boots. They, they reached out to me and asked if, I would like to get receive a pair of their boots. And uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about shoes before then, but since I've been wearing these and gone back and forth between these and then wearing normal boots again, I can tell that there is a huge difference between the two and the next boots that I'm wearing are custom made and they're, they're molded to my feet. I mean, like each of my toes has a little in, in, dent in the the inside of the shoe it just fits my uh foot perfectly and i wear those for everything i mean except for like going out to eat at a nice restaurant i'll hike with them i'll ride with them i'll work with them and they're i think it's important that you have nice gear and nice tool i mean it would be hypocritical of me to make an axe like i do and then not try and apply that same philosophy to the rest of my life. So, uh, yeah, I like nice things. <laughs> I, like, I like nice things too. And my, uh, diminishing bank account reflects that. Um, now when you're running around the shop there, like you, 
you have a flow to making the axes. Like kind of talk mm -hmm. us through the process. You have your steel heated up, rough shape, you know, whatever it may be. Like, can you think of the process all throughout your head and like just run us through it real quick? Like how it how it becomes like raw steel to finished product? Oh, I, I don't want to bore you, but <laughs> a basic, basically, you know, we have, there's basically, there's only a handful of like main steps. The first one is forging. It's all the hot metal moving from a block to an ax. The second is grinding and heat treating, which is just basically cleaning up the profile of the ax a little bit and hardening the ax head in uh, oil. And the next step is all fitting the handle to the ax head with draw knives and arbor presses are used to press the handle in. And then it's just sharpening and wedging the ax is the last stage of ax making. So, well, it's not including the sheath. The sheath is, of course, not. The sheath is done last. Um, but we in axe making, we use a really wide variety of um, uh, skills and processes. It's, it's um, neat that we get to do forging and also some uh, machining. We do woodworking. We do metallurgy. We do leatherworking. All of these different skills go into this one tool. So there's a whole lot going on in the shop to to make this one tool. It's pretty it's pretty incredible. And does your mom still help out with the leather? Yes, my yeah, my mom Karen does all of the leather work. Yeah, it's it's gotten really really good lately. Like I'm noticing, like even your stamp is awesome. You know, and I'm, I'm a leather nerd. So, uh, I was like, damn, she's really stepping up her game. You know, it's always been good, but it's getting really, really good. Um, yeah. So now let's pretend that I'm like a 13 year old version of myself and I go to a store and I see your ax, maybe like in a catalog. And I say to myself, there's no way I can afford that. Cause I'm a 13 year old kid, but I go down to the local flea market or whatever. And I find an ax that's like a starter ax what advice do you have for someone who's like, what do I need to look for when I buy an ax, right? Like how do I determine fit and finish? You hear people say that all the time, right? Like, oh, this ax has great fit and finish. Like I will say your axes have great fit and finish. You hear people say like, well, this one has really good grain, but coming from your mouth, what is fit and finish good grain? Uh, what are some of the things that you would advise say like a kid who's getting into axes like, hey buddy, you should probably look for this before you buy one of mine and you know, you're, you're getting started. This is what I'd recommend. Oh, well, um, the, I mean, there's lots of, there's a whole lot to it, but I guess as far as the ax head goes, you know, you could look for things as far as like damage to the pole is the pole mushroomed or not. If the pole, it looks like the pole has been abused. It might tell you that the rest of the ax is, could have some damage to it, or maybe the ax is lower quality. Um, things to look for on the ax head on the blade would be the radius of the blade. If the corners are like sharpened off and ground off and it's a really rounded edge, that means that that ax has been sharpened and used a whole lot. And maybe the high carbon steel that's on the edge of the ax is actually ground away 
from the axe head and now the cross section of the blade is too thick as well. So, um, those are some things to look for on the axe head and uh, the axe handle it, you, you need to look for something that's thin, really, really thin. Um, and most old axes, if they have the original handle, they will be thin, but a thin axe handle is stronger than a thick axe handle because it has more flexibility to it. And this is the same way that same theory behind how uh, skyscrapers are can flex in high wind and how suspension bridges are made to move because if those things were engineered to be rigid and stiff, they would break. And the same um, applies to an ax handle. If the ax handle is swung and, and all that vibration from hitting a piece of wood is, is um, not allowed to move in the handle, then it's going to break the handle. So looking for a nice, a very thin slender handle is important. And, um, the grain orientation does play a role. Some in ax handles. I know there's a lot of people who are really particular about, or very opinionated about, uh, ax handles. And I think a lot of the opinions just come from like the bandwagon effect. I don't think a lot of people have actually tested it in person or maybe the people who have, who do know just don't care enough to chime in. But grain orientation, I think plays a role in very long ax handles and especially curvy, the more curvy long ax handles. Um, and what the grain orient, what we're talking about with grain orientation is having the grain parallel to the blade of the ax and rather than perpendicular to the blade of the ax. And, uh, in theory, this is going to make the ax handle stronger sort of like uh, picture each layer of grain in the wood is like a layer, a piece of plywood and each one of those is a fail point for delamination. So if the grain is oriented correctly, the handle's stronger. But uh, I guess I could take this as an opportunity to say that I don't think it's as important as a lot of people think it is. <laughs> but um, those are the two, that, that would be the biggest thing on the ax handle is the thickness and the grain orientation and um the axe head it's very it it's very subjective because if it's a splitting axe it's going to be a thick axe so i couldn't necessarily say you know look for an axe with a thin blade or a thick blade or this width or this it just is sort of what you want to use it for you know yeah i you know over the years when Ever I travel and I get a chance to go to like an old trading post or whatever, I'll take a look at the axes that are being sold. And when you go up to Maine, uh, you know, there's one trading post up there in particular, right when you cross over 95, not going to name it by name, but you can pretty much guess what it is by me saying trading post. And I remember a good buddy of mine, we looked at all these axes and from this one notable old school ax maker, big name ax maker, we looked at every one of these axes and we found that the grind was uneven or it wasn't hung properly, or getting back to the grain, the grain was all over the place. Um, and we're like, damn, that, that company used to be known for like producing the quality, the quality ax up here in the Northeast. But uh, yeah, things have changed. And, and if I were to give advice to that little kid who's buying an ax for the first time, right, you know, going in the backyard, smashing on trees or whatever, don't get a very expensive ax at first, because if you put that thing into the dirt, and you hit a rock, <laughs> you're going to cry because you're going to have to, uh, 
you know, spend a lot of time fixing that, that blade. So, um, I agree a hundred percent on the looking for mushrooming because, you know, I've heard people say like, you can find cracks on the inside of the ax that you don't see on the outside. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I want you guys to get out there and, and get the right tools in your hands. Um, we're running a little short on time, but I want to ask you a couple more questions and then I'll let you get back to rest enough for tomorrow swinging hammers. Um, if there were, aside from your book, if there were like one place where let's say that someone's really getting into axes and you're like, Hey, you need to go check out this resource in terms of learning how to use an ax or learning about the history mm -hmm. of axes. Do you have a reading list that, or, or like a YouTube viewing list that you would tell people, Hey, you got to check this out. Uh, nothing super particular. You have to be very selective, very careful on what you look at. I, when I was first starting, I was on a Facebook group named ax junkies and the group was very small when I first started. And there was some, some good advice on there, but I know there's, so many people into it now the where you can, there's so many different opinions about it. Like I was talking about the handles and whether grain orientation is important whether curvy or straight handle, blah, 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 blah. But, um, there is a, uh, a guy that I've, um, sent a few handles to and, and talked back and forth with him, this guy named, um, Buckin on YouTube. And he's this Canadian tree faller guy who, like walks the walk he uh knows how to use an axe and he's very particular about his axes and how they're sharpened and how thick they are and the axe handle shape and all that sort of stuff and i think that he really knows what he's talking about you know look for people that actually use an axe in their content and do it well don't don't um necessarily maybe trust but verify people who are just giving advice on how an act should be because a lot of people just like to sort of hop on a bandwagon and feel heard have their opinions heard you know yeah that's solid um what's next for you aside from axes you're doing leather aprons you know shop aprons uh you've got all the ax handles, you're doing the occasional run of like your Jaeger knives and you know, some of the personal interest things. I know you did an integral ax, which I was like, Oh my God, that thing's massive. Um, what's kind of, kind of coming up next for you? Like on your radar, I got to try this. Um, well the next mega huge project, which will take, I, I've already been conceptualizing it for probably two years is going to be, coming out with a production knife line, just like our ax line, but I want to do the same thing with knives and you know, they'll all be, wh what is going to be unique about them is that they will all be forged to finish in integral knives with hidden tang wooden handles. So the knife is going to look like it'll have the same appearance and style as a custom one of a kind integral knife, but I want to do it on a production scale and I want to sell them for the same price that someone would sell a, a water jet cut stock removal ground knife for. And, uh, the process, so developing the, the processes and dies and tooling for that is my next huge, huge project. 
damn, I, I, didn't, I couldn't even wrap my head around how you would do that. Like I've seen the behind the scenes of stock removal places, water jet cut knives, stock removal places. I couldn't even imagine the quality control that you need for that or the process. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to be enamored by like, Hey, this product is really awesome, but I think I'm going to be more impressed with the how of you, how you do it, <laughs> you know, which doesn't seem like it's going to be easy. It, it won't be in order to do integral knives on a production scale. You have to have big enough equipment because you're forging from a, a round or a square bar of steel, not a flat bar. And you have to do it quickly. So you need big enough hammers. You need big enough hydraulic presses. You need OBI trim presses. Um, and then in order to do the handle, since I'm going to be doing hidden tank instead of full tank, which is not a thing when it comes to production knife making, uh, I'm going to be able to use my copy lathe that I use for the axe handles to turn my hidden tank knife handles. Um, currently, you know, the production knife world is so generically saturated and it's all the same. You know, you get a sheet of steel, water jet cut, and then you either, you grind it on a belt grinder shape or you have, you CNC machine it. And then you have scales that are routed out for you and you pin it together and they're all the same. And I want to do something totally different. I want to make a lot of knife makers upset when I do this. That's my... <laughs> My goal is to just disrupt the whole uh, knife world with with these. Because I want to do something that's that no one else is doing. And it, in order to do that, it it uh, takes the equipment and it takes the experience that I've gotten from axe making and developing processes, jigs, tools, and using that machinery and actually doing it on a production level. Because I always say that it's it is one thing to make one, you know, high end $5,000 knife. It's like, no, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than making a hundred of them and make, and, and doing it consistently, repeatedly make doing the process of production is the real challenge. Jeez. I I'm blown away. Cause you're only 26, right? 25. You son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't even want to tell you what I was doing at 25, but I was definitely not coming up with a strategy to disrupt the knife industry. Holy crap. Um, where can people find you? Like, what are your socials? What are, what's the website? Let everyone know. Every, everything is Hoffman blacksmithing. The only things that I really use are Instagram, Facebook, and also our website. And all of those are Hoffman blacksmithing. So you're really not easy a, to find. You're not affiliated with that guy that keeps tagging your stuff and posting pictures of you and me and in Alaska. And what is it? I don't even want to I give that guy credit. That. Oh man. Yeah. He's posting up t-shirts and he's like, Oh, buy my shirt. It's American, whatever. And, and I'm like, no, that's. Oh yeah. I have guys that do that. Yeah. They're not original enough to come up with their own thing. So they steal people's content. Yeah. And how much of a loser are you if you're using my image to try to scam women? Like there are dudes out there that <laughs> are far less gray and have more hair and are better looking, but I still get messages from women all the time. Like some guy's using your image and I'm like, he's a loser, you know? So <laughs> it is what it is, man. That's the internet. Um, well, Liam, thanks so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, I'll see you hopefully at blade this year and, uh, yeah, 
and I'll be there. I'll, and I'll be in North Carolina in April uh, doing a an austere med class. And there's a very good chance that I will be relocating to the North Carolina office. So I'll be in the Aberdeen Fayetteville mm-hmm. area. I don't know how far that is from Boone, but I'll definitely have to hit you up. It's, it's about four hours. That's nothing. After living in Utah, where it takes like nine hours to get to the Southern border of the state, like I can drive four hours with my eyes closed. So yeah, I'll definitely have to, come have up, to we'll go hiking, camping, shooting, riding, forging, whatever, man, that sounds really dangerous. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, man. Well, Hey, uh, we'll sign off of this podcast and, uh, we'll, we'll definitely see each other at blade. So guys, this is the field craft survival podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>